Uh, would you pray with me? Gracious God, thank you for the joy it is to approach your word. Um, we confess, Lord, sometimes we get complacent with it. Sometimes we see it as a, a light thing or a, a tiresome thing. And yet, Lord, in our hands, when we have your Bible, we know that we have the, the words of the living God that he has spoken to us. What an amazing wonder. And so, Lord, we ask that as we look at it today, you would build us as a community uh, of the word, Lord, a community formed out of the truth of the gospel that we find here in this Bible. Uh, Lord, would you build up your church today? In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start today by asking you a little question. That's my daughter. (laughs) Proud. Uh, Little question. Uh, Are you named after something or someone? A um, few yeses, few noes, one person weeping. Uh, <laughs> when I was born, uh, now, now I can get corrected on this, but my mum wanted to call me Henry, am I right? Yeah? Uh, now I don't mind the name Henry, uh, I actually kind of like it, uh, but John's grown on me over the years as well. But um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not laughing at her, I'm just laughing at the timing. No, yeah. Um, I blame the father. <laughs> but whilst, whilst Henry is, to the best of my knowledge, just a name that, that mum liked, um, John is my dad's middle name, Phil's middle name. Uh, and it's actually a name that's been carried down generationally throughout our family history. The first cook in our family line to move to Australia was John Cook, senior, 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 something like that. Um, But names aren't just after things, often they're given because of their meaning. John, for instance, means God has been gracious, and indeed he was to my parents. Uh, In the Bible, though, when when Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, uh, gets pregnant, uh, beyond all odds, she names her son John as well. Uh, because God has been gracious to her. Now, some people today uh, might consider a different name meaning if they suddenly got pregnant in their old age. Uh, but at, this, uh, at that time, having, having a new baby was this incredibly special thing. And having, having children, having descendants to follow after you was, was verging on a necessity, um, more, more so than it is now. Now, Crystal, on the other hand, uh, uh, which is my wife's name, if you didn't already know, I think you all do, uh, it's a, it's a beautiful name that I personally appreciate greatly, deeply, but uh, it means crystal, uh, spelt with a C this time. Uh, it's a type of rock formation, if you don't know. Uh, if you want to put a better spin on it, more appropriate to the person, perhaps uh, more saving of my marriage, you could say it means precious gemstone. Uh, but still, it's a bit of a rock. But, but before I completely destroy my marriage altogether, uh, let me get to where I'm going with this, which is to say that uh, the church, did you know, we're named for something. Um, do you know what the, the name of the church means? Uh, I don't mean the, the name of gospel church, this particular congregation. I mean the church in general. Uh, the word in the New Testament that we translate as church Uh, literally means gathering or assembly. In one sense, you could say we are the get-together, you know? Uh, The point is that the church is necessarily, by its very name, communal. It's about people getting together. Being a part of the people of God means that you become a part of a community by the very name that you take on. 
And that's not just a throwaway word. It's not just this word that one of the New Testament authors was like, well, what should we call this thing? I know, gathering, because they get together. That's good. No, actually, it represents something unique and powerful that God has been achieving, that God achieved, rather, through the gospel when he formed his church. Uh, In the midst of a world where authentic community is in short supply, where loneliness, separation and disconnection are rampant, God's people are to live out a reality which flows from the gospel and which it does not go too far to say is actually one of the great things that God has been achieving throughout all of human history. Now, let me explain what I mean there. And to do that, we're going to go back Uh, in the Bible to the very start. So if you've got a Bible, um, we had it read for us before, but we're going to go there again. We're going to the the second chapter of Genesis. And we're going to see that community was a part of our created purpose. Uh, In Genesis chapter 1, you're probably familiar with this chapter. Most of us will have uh, read it maybe a few times. God creates things. Uh, So if you've read it before, you probably will be able to finish this sentence for me, right? And God saw that it was good, right? Uh, Again and again, we practiced this earlier on, and Matt refused to say the word. I know he knows it. Uh, Again and again, though, in Genesis 1, God creates these perfect things. He builds this beautifully balanced creation with with light and darkness and and, sun and moon. Uh, sea and sky with birds and fish, plants and trees with people and with animals to eat them. And whenever he creates something, uh, immediately we read that in God's eyes, it was good. And so it should absolutely stop us in our tracks when we get to chapter 2 and we read about something astounding. Uh, Before the fall, chapter 2, chapter 3 is where we get sin entering the world. So sin has not come into the world yet. And yet we read these astounding words. Read this with me again from from 2, and I'll give you a little bit of context and go from verse 15. Um, So, where am I here? The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, shall surely, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, did you, did you see what happened there? Yeah. Do you see how, how startling that is? It's exactly the same word in the Hebrew there. Uh, I had to check that. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. But uh, uh, it flies against the whole of the rest of creation at that point. That God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. In, in this perfect created world where everything is good, uh, God declares in black and white that something is lacking. Something is not good. Humanity is not meant to be alone. And rightly, we look at that, and and the main thing that we get out of that is the basis for marriage, right? Um, Because God goes on and he creates Eve, the closest form of human community between a husband and a wife, and, uh, and they become one flesh. And we read that a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that's marriage being set up. But nevertheless, there's a broader principle there as well. We were not made to be alone. 
We were made first to have good relationship with God, with our creator. But when our relationship with God is right, we should also have rich relationships, uh, rich community, if you will, with people. So in the beginning, we were made for community. And doesn't that make sense then of what happens next in the Bible, right? Uh, Because if we were created to live in community with others, expressing relationships of love that reflect a perfect relationship with our creator, then it shouldn't be surprising that when our relationship with God was broken in Genesis 3, the next thing to go was our relationship with each other. Uh, Do you ever notice how startlingly quickly this happens? Uh, In how, how quickly human community collapses after Adam and Eve eat that fruit. If you've got Genesis 3 there, you can look at it. The, f- the first thing that happens, what's the, what, so, so Genesis 3, verse 6, they eat the fruit. What's the first thing that happens immediately after they eat the fruit in 3, verse 7? Their eyes were naked. They realize they're naked and they sewed fig leaves. They put clothes together. Um, the, so the first thing to happen is that this perfect married couple who've just become one flesh in chapter two become unwilling to be seen by each other as they are. You know, three, six, fruit, three, seven, unwilling to even be seen by each other. Then three, eight through 13, uh, we see this complete breakdown starting to take hold. They're hiding from God and they're blaming each other for sin. I mean, imagine, imagine this. Imagine you were reading the Bible for the first time, okay? Uh, and you, you don't know what's coming up, right? Forget everything you know. Remember the English language and your capacity to read it in words, but other than that. Uh, imagine you're reading this for the first time and you get to Genesis 3, right? And maybe you're like, oh no, they sinned, they fell, oh, now they're cursed. Oh, bother, that's, that's really bad. Um, they've been thrown out of the garden, but, but maybe it's not as bad as all that, right? Um, humans, number one and two, Adam and Eve, they, they struggle now, but they're having kids. They're doing okay. But whoa, number three just killed number four, right? That's, that's, if you don't know, that's what happens next in the Bible. Cain kills Abel. Uh, the third and fourth humans in humanity cut it down to three again. They start, they start population control. Um, seriously, Matt and I discussed this earlier in the week, and uh, sometimes we talk about the history of humanity uh, after the fall as though it was a, a downward spiral, and that, that's true to an extent, uh, but in a very real way, we kind of just hit rock bottom straight away, don't we? we? Sin enters the world, one generation later, we are killing each other. It doesn't get a lot worse than that. Our community breaks apart at the seams immediately. But, but don't miss the point here. Sin destroys community. A world plagued with sin is a world filled with broken relationships, with loneliness, and with separation. And that holds true today, doesn't it? Uh, In our anything-goes culture of the West, loneliness is openly at epidemic proportions. I I don't use those words lightly because I actually stand with some of the largest medical organizations in the world in declaring that including the Australian Medical Organization that has declared that loneliness in Australia is an epidemic, in those words. America and the UK have done the same thing. In the UK, they've just recently, this year, appointed their very first ever Minister for Loneliness in the government in recognition of the size of this problem. And this world embraces sin. 
And therefore, since the fall, we've had continually broken community. Let me chuck one more stat in there. Uh, a recent study found that one in three people feel like strangers in their own suburb. You know? But then, Jesus came, right? And the truth of his life, death, and resurrection changes our relationship with God first, but therefore it transforms our relationships with each other. This reality is really plastered across the New Testament. We could spend weeks looking at this. It's not an overstatement. Jesus comes, and what does he do? He builds a community of men and women, and he teaches them the way of this new community. Things like rulers aren't to lord it over each, uh, each other, but they are to outdo each other in serving. They are to live in holiness toward each other as a community. And we read again and again, they are to be a community of love. And he doesn't just teach it, but he establishes this new community by a new covenant in his blood. And on, on the night before Jesus died, we'll come back to this later on, but on the night before he died, we get these words from him that are intensely significant. So, so turn with me. We're going to go to John chapter 13, which we also read before. But they're intensely significant for how we live as a Christian gospel-formed community. We're going to go from 13 verse 34. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's a lot you can take from those verses, but I'm going to bring out two things, two, three-ish uh, today. Um, the first one being that the love of the Christian community is, is focused on the love of Jesus and flows from our experience of that love. No, that, that's why I said two or three, because really that's two things, but I'm going to treat it as one. Uh, our love is focused on the love of Jesus. What I mean by that is that knowing we are called to love one another, we get our objective definition of that love when we look at Jesus. Okay? But it's not just focused on it. It's not just an objective experience. It flows from our experience of that love toward us. We don't, we don't just look at the death of Jesus and go, yeah, that's really loving, actually. Hmm, I would rate that as a nine and a half, ten. Yeah. No, we, we look at the death of Jesus on the cross and we are broken by that because we realize, we see, that's love toward me. You know, that's love toward Malcolm, Rod, Jackie, Rach, everyone else as well. Don't feel left out. <laughs> he died for me. Think about the moment this was spoken, right? Jesus knows full well at this point that he is about to go and die for their sins. He's 24 hours out-ish. The perfect son of God is going to be nailed to a cross and carry all of God's anger with sin and die in love to save his people. And he says, love like I love you. The way we live toward each other 
is to be formed by how Jesus has been toward us. And his love has been infinite. Like, like let me pull out an extra implication that I, that I didn't think to write down, but it came to me earlier on when I was thinking about this. Um, the way we are toward each other does not draw out of how other people have been towards me. You know, if Matt kicks me in the shins as a Christian, I have no ground to kick him back. Because the way that I love towards Matt is based in the love of Jesus towards me. I want to talk to him about it, sure. But, uh, you know, and I'd probably stop him from kicking me again. Don't get me wrong. This is, this is a message that we just hear again and again in the New Testament. The truth of who Jesus is and what he has done, it transforms and redeems how we are toward each other. Can you see how this standard of love means that every wall is broken down within the Christian community? Every excuse for hatred and, and malice and grudges is just obliterated in the face of this one thing. Every excuse for not being lovingly mingled in each other's lives disappears in the face of this. How can I speak behind your back? Dad, for instance. Like I do fairly often. No, how, but, but, but no, I don't. But how could I speak behind your back, right? About, about that terrible thing you did. And that could be a terrible thing. People do terrible things to each other. But how could I do that if I know that Jesus knew every terrible thing that I would ever do? And he died in love to free me from them. How can I hold a grudge against another Christian? And don't, don't we get tempted to do that? You know? I know we've all had situations where we are so tempted to hold it against another Christian and to be grudging towards them because of something they've done. But how can I do that? How, or how can I speak down to them or become self-righteous with them when I know that the truly righteous Lord of the universe did not speak down to me? And he did not hold a grudge against me, though he could have. But instead, he paid the price for all of the evil that I did, with which I had hated him. And, and it's not just what I don't do, right? It's what I do. How can I hold back from reaching out in care toward a brother or sister in need if I know that God did not spare his only son, but gave him for me? And with him gave me all things, Paul teaches in Romans. It is so heartbreaking when you hear about or when you live in churches where grudges take hold, where people uh, talk behind each other's back or talk spitefully to each other's faces, where, where factions rise up and where church becomes politicized and clicky. Crystal and I were part of a church at one point years ago now, uh, not too many years ago. I'm not talking about last time I was living on York Peninsula. Um, but we were part of a church where the membership meetings devolved regularly into these lengthy sessions of argument and anger. And, and the membership of the church was, was a one to 200 group of people. So this was a real mess, you know. I remember after a lengthy, soul-destroying, ungodly discussion, one godly woman actually raised her hand one time and, and she said, guys, can we, can we just stop? This isn't how we're meant to be. We're meant to be the people of Jesus. Can we just stop and pray? Uh, and I, I appreciated her more than I've ever appreciated anyone in any membership meeting ever. 
uh, and to my terror, this older bloke, long-term member of the church, he responded with something along the lines of, no, we don't have time for that. We need to get home. I got work in the morning. Uh, <laughs> another hour of discussion later, we weren't home. Uh, it was heartbreaking, though, and not just because people were being mean to each other. It was heartbreaking because when we do that, when Christians get better, bitter and resentful and spiteful, especially toward each other, when we fail to live in love toward each other, then we reveal that we have forgotten about Jesus. We deny the reality of Jesus with what we live, how we live. That's a better way of putting it. Because the, the love that Jesus has shown to us is much, much higher than the love it takes for me to be loving toward a brother or sister that I disagree with about the new ceiling fans in church. Honestly, one of those meetings was about that. <laughs> or the car park. Or something serious, right? Like the calling of a new pastor. That Some of the others were about that. Or about serious sin in someone's life. Now, it doesn't mean you don't address sin, but as a Christian community, we, dev- we don't step outside the bounds of love. Even if we have to lovingly discipline someone. The gospel breaks down hostility and hatred between Christians. Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians about a huge division. The division between Jew and Gentile in the church, right? That's a serious divide. And he says that by his cross, Jesus has, and he uses these literal words, killed the hostility. No divide or hatred is so strong that it can overpower the gospel and prevent it from bringing two believers who know the love of the gospel together. Now, I said two things-ish. My second thing to say from Jesus' words there, that we are to love one another as he has loved us, is that it creates a missional implication to our community. Sorry, Matt. Um, so, so if you remember what I said last week, in two weeks' time, Matt's going to be speaking to us about the mission of the church. Uh, I, I know he's doing that, and I'm still going to jump the gun on this because you can't go to this passage of Scripture and not say this. Uh, the, the Christian community is not just formed by the truth of the gospel. The very nature of the Christian community expresses the gospel to the world around it. And we know that for sure because Jesus says it right there in black and white or red, depending on your Bible. Uh, by this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Sometimes Christians have, uh, have read this passage wrong. We, we've acted like it says, by this you will know that you are my disciples. Close, but no. You know, like, we've read it like, when you love one another, then you have it confirmed to yourself that you're a follower of Jesus, that you're a Christian. It's a great way of knowing that you're a Christian. The Bible does talk about bearing fruit as evidence of faith. Don't get me wrong. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. As we root ourselves in the love of Jesus found in the gospel and are formed into a beautifully, radically countercultural community of mutual love, then that stands as a testament to the world around us. This is what Jesus is like. Our love expresses who he is. Our love stands as a statement to the truth of the gospel that we speak with our mouths. 
You know, I read a, I was reading a book this week called Church in Hard Places. It's a great book if you want to give it a read, but uh, I think this quote from it captures this so well. It's a bit wordy, but you'll forgive me because I've already got to explain it. The congregation is the, the hermeneutic of the gospel. It's the way the world comes to understand the gospel message. As a, as a broken world uh, that as a broken world that understands nothing of the depth of Jesus' love, looks on the Christian community of the church. It helps them to see and to understand, although in a flawed way still, the message of how deep and beautiful the love of Jesus is. That it brings these people right, together and it drives them to such love for each other. I want to finish today with just three implications of what we've said. They're much shorter than my other two things that I was going to say. That helps. First thing, the community of the love of Jesus is open to any who will believe in his work on the cross and in his rising again. Now, we may not have, uh, have anyone here. I suspect we don't have anyone here who hasn't believed the gospel for the first time. We never want to assume that as a church. And nor do we assume that someone uh, won't at some point hear this uh, and, and, and hear the call to believe. So hear it now. Believe in Jesus. He can save you and you can be a part of the community of the gospel. Your relationships can be transformed through the gospel. Second implication, probably the most basic one of all uh, for Christians, is that you can't be a community of love without having lives that overlap with each other. Now, at this point, uh, there is a level of hypocrisy in me saying that. Um, we've just moved here. We've just started this church. At this point, this church exists largely on a Sunday. Uh, I did not see Philip and Robin during the week, this week. Or I saw Malcolm twice. Uh, thank you, Malcolm. Uh, our meaningful interactions throughout the week are sporadic, though, right, at this point. That's okay. It's good to have sporadic interactions as well. Uh, maybe chance ones is a better way of putting it. But sometimes they're even non-existent, but it can't stay that way forever if we are to live as the gospel community of God's people. One thing that means, and this is only one thing that that means, is that at some point, not too far down the track, we're going to start uh, meeting in groups during the week as a church. Uh, I, think, I think we're going to call them gospel communities is the plan. Uh, I know that may sound burdensome to, to, to some, but it really is a great platform to start getting connected into each other's lives. So we, so we intend for that to be, at some stage, just a part of the DNA that gets built into this church of who we are. You know, you go to gospel church and therefore you have a gospel community. And, and, you know, don't hear that as an inflexible, we're laying a law down on people. You know, maybe you can only make one every second week because maybe you're in that stage of life where things are crazy. But, but these are just a wonderful opportunity and I hope that we'll see them like that. It, it, let me give you a little glimpse of what the idea of that is because sometimes we hear about a church that does home groups, small groups, gospel communities, missional communities. There are a bazillion names for these things. Uh, that is an overstatement because that number doesn't exist. But, um, but, but what this will be, amongst other things, 
uh, you know, sure, we'll look at the word together and we'll seek to grow into the word together. But at the same time, these are to be a, a group of people, a, a gospel community together, which is a community of people who are caring powerfully for each other. The onus in the Bible for, for caring for each other isn't on a special class of Christians like elders or pastors or whatever caring for the church. It's on the church caring for the church. Um, and that's going to be a great context for that. You know, a group who cook meals for each other when they're sick and struggling, who are invested in each other's lives, who know each other's pains, who know each other's sins and struggles and apply the love of Christ in those situations who spur each other on to gospel-motivated mission as well. And I could go on. There's loads you could say about this, but uh, I won't for now. Third and final implication, and again, apologies to Matt, who will be speaking on mission in a few weeks. There is no reason, from what we've heard in the Bible, there is no reason why our community should not be able to reach out to and bring in people who are drastically different to us. Don't see your mission field as the people who are just the same as you. You know, is someone different to you culturally? That's not as common here as it is maybe over, over in the city, but, but, but it is still a thing where you have people from different ethnic backgrounds. Um, Jesus breaks down the wall. In fact, uh, because he's broken down the wall, because he's killed the hostility by his blood, you are empowered in his name to love that person in a way that is entirely unnatural to yourself. Is someone of a drastically different social group to you? You know, do they drink a lot? Do they smoke? Do they swear a lot? Or, or maybe some other things. Is it that they are younger than you, older than you, richer than you, poorer than you? None of those things stopped Jesus from saving you or any other person. There are people from all of those groups and more who have been saved into his church. None of them stops him from loving us. And therefore, none of these things should stop us from loving and embracing and rejoicing in the salvation of others. Now, qualifier, certainly things like excessive drinking, you would expect to see changed as you are saved by the gospel. But the steadfast, honest, tender love of God expressed through the Christian community is a big part of what brings that change. God uses his people instrumentally in each other's lives. And uh, on that, we're now going to transition into a time of communion. Uh, and that may seem a bit of an odd junction, perhaps, but I hope it doesn't, because communion is what Jesus established as the sign of a new covenant. Uh, when Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, on the night before he uh, died, he broke bread and poured out a cup and gave it to his disciples. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And the new covenant is what the new community stands upon, on the blood of Jesus. And so we're going to separate that he has, uh, separate, celebrate that he has brought us into community together as we eat this bread and as we drink this juice together. And so I'd invite you, uh, I'm going to pray, and then Matt's maybe going to come up and strum a few chords. But as you uh, feel able, come up, tear off a piece of bread. We have so much bread today, because uh, this is the loaf that the Middleton Bakery had. Uh, tear off some off, dip it in one of those cups, and eat it, and remember that Jesus died, and he defeated your sin. 
Jesus rose from the grave and stands victorious and you have life in his name to live as the community of his people. Jesus, thank you that you died for us. Thank you that your body was broken and your blood was shed. Help us never to have our, uh, never to cease having our breath taken away by that one fact. The truth of the gospel, that you are the Lord of the universe and you came and you lived and you died and you are risen. Bless us as we do this, Lord, in remembering our sin and remembering your grace to us and build us as a community of people around the truth, the redeeming truth of what you have done. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.